Safeway makes sure your grocery shopping is easier than ever. Download the Safeway mobile app today to have your own personal grocery guru right in your pocket. Use it to plan your shopping list like a pro. Find recipes tailored to your diet, get personalized deals on the products you buy most, and choose your shopping style. Whether it's in-store, delivery, or drive-up, Safeway's got you covered. Plus, rack up rewards points for every purchase and redeem for free grocery items or discount on gas at participating Exxon or mobile stations. Safeway, fresh foods, local flavors. Thank you for listening to Depictions Media Radio. Thank you. Thank you, Margareta. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I want to start by paying tribute to Professor Peter Bias, who passed away suddenly on Sunday. Peter was the former director of the Center for Global Health Research at Umeå University in Sweden and the chief editor of Global Health Action. He was a committed and talented servant of global health who helped many people shine around the world. He was also my dear friend and, and mentor. I have worked with him, learned from him, and laughed with him. He will be much missed. My thoughts are with his family and loved ones at this uh, time. Our last media briefing focused on the world's progress in developing new diagnostic tests, therapeutics, and vaccines. Today, I'm going to outline some of the key logistical hurdles we have faced in the last eight months, shipping life-saving medical equipment around the world. The lessons learned from the distribution of these supplies will be important as we look to ensure that our supply chains and systems are honed for future breakthroughs from the ACT accelerator. Learning from past experience and challenges is key to improving the current pandemic response to this and future outbreaks. Every new disease outbreak presents new challenges, but from a logistics perspective, COVID-19 has been one of the toughest challenges we have ever faced. Because this respiratory disease passes relatively easily between people, when this outbreak started, there was an urgent need to get advice, information, training, and equipment to frontline workers. On the 5th January, days after a cluster of unknown pneumonia was identified in Wuhan, China, WHO shared detailed information on the cases with the world and advised all countries and emergency contact points to take precautions to reduce the risk of severe acute respiratory infections. Between the 10th and 12th of January, WHO published a package of guidance documents for, for countries. This covered topics related to the management of an outbreak of a new disease, including finding and testing for the disease, caring for patients and infection prevention and control measures to protect health care workers. By the second week of January, China had mapped the genome 
and shared it with WHO and with wider world. We rapidly published a how-to on building a PCR test for COVID-19 from our partner lab in Germany. In the third week, WHO identified and began contracting for validated production of these tests. By the first week of February, we began shipping tests to over 150 labs around the world, which enabled the countries to quickly identify, track, and trace the virus. As this was happening, and outbreaks started to spread in other countries, there was a huge surge in demand for personal protective equipment, such as medical masks, gowns, gloves, and face protection. Manufacturers in several key countries were under so-called lockdown, and there was a collapse in air transport, which is imperative for sending supplies around the world. Some countries put in place export restrictions, and there were several instances of requisitioning key medical supplies for national use. Supply nationalism exacerbated the pandemic and contributed to the total failure of the global supply chain. For a period of time, some countries were without key supplies, such as key items for health workers who were dealing with surging cases of COVID-19. And many countries still do not have enough. To boost manufacturing and ensure that supply chains began to function, early on in the outbreak, WHO convened regular meetings with key companies and industry groups. WHO worked closely with the World Food Programme and quickly utilized nine new and existing logistics hubs to establish a solid supply chain to deliver life-saving PPE and medical supplies around the world. WHO worked with partners like UNICEF, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Jack Ma Foundation, and Alibaba Foundation to purchase and deliver hundreds of millions of pieces of protective equipment for health workers. The partners platform created at the end of January has become a critical tool to help countries highlight financial, supply and personal needs and deliver the necessary public health response. WHO worked to unblock bottlenecks by working with public and private partners to increase supplies within the market. So what are the lessons? While there is a wish amongst leaders to protect their own people first, the response to this pandemic has to be collective. This is not charity. We have learned the hard way that the fastest way to end this pandemic and to reopen economies is to start by protecting the highest risk populations everywhere, rather than the entire populations of just some countries. Sharing finite supply strategically and globally is actually in each country's national interest. No one is safe 
until everyone is safe. No one country has access to research and development, manufacturing, and all the supply chain for all essential medicines and materials. And if we can work together, we can ensure that all essential workers are protected and proven treatments like dexamethasone are available to those who need them. With PPE and tests, a collaboration between the public and private sectors meant supply was increased in order to support fair and equitable use of scarce products. As new diagnostics, medicines, and vaccines come through the pipeline, it's critical that countries don't repeat the same mistakes. We need to prevent vaccine nationalism. And for this reason, WHO is working with governments and the private sector to both accelerate the science through the ACT Accelerator and ensure that new innovations are available to everyone, everywhere, starting with those at highest risk. Since May, WHO has been in extensive consultations to develop a new framework to guide fair and equitable access to diagnostics, therapeutics, and vaccines for COVID-19 across all countries. These cross-cutting principles are key to the promotion of equitable access and fair allocation of these essential health products for the greatest impact globally. For example, once a successful vaccine has been identified, WHO's strategic advisory group will provide recommendations for their appropriate and fair use. The allocation of vaccines is proposed to be rolled out in two phases. In phase one, doses will be allocated proportionally to all participating countries simultaneously to reduce overall risk. In phase two, consideration will be given to countries in relation to threat and vulnerability. Frontline workers in health and social care settings are prioritized as they are essential to treat and protect the population and come in close contact with high mortality risk groups. Initial data has shown that adults over 65 years old and those with certain comorbidities are the highest at the highest risk of dying from COVID-19. For most countries, a phase one allocation that builds up to 20% of the population would cover most of the at-risk groups. If we don't protect these highest-risk people from the virus everywhere, and at the same time, we can't stabilize health systems and rebuild the global economy. This is what the first crucial phase of the vaccine allocation mechanism aims to do. We are also interconnected. As a small example, vaccine developed in one country may need to be filled in vials with stoppers that are produced in another using materials 
for the high-grade glass that's only available from yet another country. We will need to quickly manufacture billions of doses to reach all those who need the vaccine, which means hundreds of millions of glass vials and ways to transport them effectively. All this means elite planning at the highest level is needed right now to prepare to vaccinate and treat the world as new technologies come down the pipeline. As we accelerate the science, solidarity is needed to provide a joint solution to the pandemic. The COVAX Global Vaccines Facility is the critical mechanism for joint procurement and pooling risk across multiple vaccines, which is why today I sent a letter to every member state encouraging them to join the COVAX facility. Like an orchestra, we need all instruments to be played in harmony to create music that everyone enjoys. One or two instruments playing by themselves just won't suffice when the world is waiting and listening intently. We will work to bring the band together to promote science, solutions and solidarity because we believe to our core that we do it best when we do it together. I thank you. Thank you, Dr. Tedros. I will now open the floor to questions from the, the press online, but I'd remind you first that if you wish to ask a question, you need to raise your hand. I'll also ask you to keep your questions to one question. You may ask your question in any of the six UN languages, plus Portuguese, uh, because we have simultaneous translation. We are restricting this briefing to under an hour as usual, so as I said before, please restrict yourself to one question. Now for the first question, because we've got this press conference earlier, we've got people joining us really from all around the world, we have a question from Australia. So I'll ask Jason Gale of Bloomberg to please unmute yourself and please ask your question, Jason. Jason, can you hear us? I just unmuted myself. Can you hear me now? Very well. Please go ahead and ask your question. Yeah, as the Northern Hemisphere enters autumn, what can we uh, predict might happen with influenza and other respiratory infections this winter based on what was observed in the Southern Hemisphere? And what do we know about SARS-CoV-2 co-infection? Is it, is it a worse prognosis? Uh, so thank you, Jason, for the question. I'll, I'll begin. Um, so it's a good question that you have about um, the, the circulation of influenza uh, virus in the southern hemisphere and what we may expect from the northern hemisphere. So as, as I'm sure you know, we have um, what is called the Global Influenza Surveillance and Research. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Response system, uh, which is GISRIS, um, which is a system that's been in place for. Um, more than 70 years, uh, which utilizes laboratories and respiratory disease surveillance systems across the globe um, to collect samples um, from people who have influenza-like illness or severe acute respiratory illness to test for viruses like flu. Um, that system was used for COVID-19, uh, which is really quite incredible, uh, which really facilitated the world to be able to quickly uh, test for COVID-19. Um, what we know is that there are, uh, countries are using the GISRIS system right now for influenza and for COVID-19. Um, and there are many countries that are continuing to test for influenza. Um, in the last two-week period, um, where we have the reporting period from July 20th to the 2nd of August, uh, almost 300,000 specimens for influenza were tested, and only 37 were positive for influenza. Um, this comes across a large number of countries um, that, are, that are looking for influenza, and so it seems like flu uh, circulation is low. Um, there may be a number of reasons for this, particularly in the southern hemisphere, uh, where they are having their flu season, uh, their winter flu season. Many of the physical distancing and public health and social measures that have been put in place, which keep, keeps people apart, uh, may have actually uh, played a role in reducing circulation of influenza. Um, I think we need to be careful about making uh, a, an assessment of what may happen in the northern hemisphere for a number of reasons. First of all, we need to continue to test for influenza all across the globe. So the systems that are in place that are testing for COVID must continue to test for flu. That's first and foremost. Secondly, we do have a vaccine for influenza. And so it's important that people get vaccinated against influenza when that vaccine becomes available. That's really important because it will be quite difficult when, if somebody is infected with either COVID or flu and they have a flu-like illness or cold-like symptoms, we won't be able to distinguish immediately between whether somebody has flu or whether somebody has COVID. We will need testing to be able to do that. So it could, be, it could complicate the clinical picture, um, but there are tools that are in place for influenza. And so it is really, really important that when the vaccine becomes available for flu, that people do take that vaccine. Please go ahead, Dr. Aylward. Thanks, Margaret. And Jason, just to reinforce the importance of the issue that you raised with respect to flu and COVID. Last year, as Maria mentioned, the COVID hit the Northern Hemisphere in most places as we were coming out of the flu season. And this is extremely important because as you look at the massive expansion that had to happen in critical care capacities in the Northern Hemisphere in particular, in a lot of the uh, countries and areas that uh, we were working with, when, they were, when you asked uh, a hospital, how did you expand from 30 beds to 45 or 30 to 50 or whatever, the answer often was because we had that additional surge capacity for flu 
flu. So a lot of the surge capacity that we relied on to be able to manage the critical care, critically sick patients last year certainly initially came from that surge capacity. And that highlights the reason it's so important to get the flu vaccination rates up this year, even relative to previous years, as Maria emphasized, because we need that capacity potentially to manage COVID also uh, this year. Again, as we spoke about last uh, in our last presser, um, we have a huge susceptibility gap still against, uh, against this disease, COVID. We're going into a high season for transmission of respiratory illnesses, um, and hence our concern that we have all possible capacities optimized to be able to manage that. And part of this is going to be managing flu and managing, uh, ensuring optimal flu vaccination, as, as Maria mentioned. Thank you very much, Drs. Van Kerkhoff and Dr. Aylward. Uh, the next question comes close from closer to home. It's from Nina from Argence France Press. Nina, please unmute yourself and go ahead. Thank you. Can you hear me? Very well. Please go ahead. Okay, great. Thanks a lot. Um, I was wondering, I, I saw that um, there was some reports out earlier this week about that suggested that the um, that so-called herd immunity against COVID-19 could become effective with just around 50% of people immune, uh, opposed to 70 or 80% as uh, thought previously. Is this something that you're looking at? And uh, do you have a better idea of whether contra contracting the disease could provide the wanted immunity, or if it would mean um, that 50% of the world's population would have to receive a vaccine to reach that? Thank you. So thanks, thanks for this question. Um, I will, I will begin. So normally, uh, when we talk about herd immunity, we talk about the use of a vaccine, and how many people need to be vaccinated uh, to be able to reach the, the right proportion, so the virus will not have an opportunity to circulate between people. What we are learning about immunity, what we are learning about antibodies, and uh, it comes from seroepidemiology studies. Uh, there are a large number of seroepidemiology studies specifically for SARS-CoV-2 that are occurring right now globally, more than 100 right now. Um, we are working with um, at least 50 countries right now to carry out uh, studies on seroepidemiology so that we use a standardized approach across these different countries. Um, most of the studies uh, that have been conducted so far, um, they've used a variety of methods, they've used a variety of antibody tests, so there are limitations in terms of, I don't want to overgeneralize, um, but what we've learned from the studies available to date is that less than 10% of, of the population has evidence of antibodies against SARS-CoV-2 virus. So what we really want to know are if people have these neutralizing antibodies, which are uh, collected using a specific type of test, antibody test. Not all studies are actually looking for neutralizing antibodies. There are some higher seroprevalence rates among some, some frontline workers, some higher risk groups. So for example, healthcare workers or some frontline workers you know, who have been directly exposed to the virus, um, some areas with intense transmission, and those seropositivity rates go around 20%, 25%. But again, that means that a large proportion of the population remains susceptible. Um, there are some suggestions of what that level of herd immunity needs to reach. Um, a lot of these are done through modeling projections. That is quite helpful. But what we are looking at right now are the results of the seroepidemiology studies that are being conducted. And these tell us consistently 
across all regions that a large proportion of the population remains susceptible to infection. And that means the virus has an opportunity to spread. So this is why we emphasize so much that we have a, a responsibility ourselves to prevent ourselves from getting infected, and if we are infected, to prevent that virus from passing to others, which is why we focus on the case finding, the contact tracing, isolation of cases, quarantine of contacts. Um, having said that, just lastly to say is when somebody is infected with this virus, we expect that they develop an immune response. What we are learning right now is how strong that response is and for how long that response will last. We do not have a complete picture of this yet, but we do expect that if people are infected, um, and there may be some differences if they have a mild disease or even if they're asymptomatic um, versus if they have a severe disease, they do mount an immune response. What we don't know is for how, how strong that is and for how long that will last, but those studies are currently underway. I've got two inter interventions, Dr. Mike Ryan remotely and then Dr. Bruce Aylward. So, Dr. Mike Ryan, please go ahead. Hi, Margaret, can you hear me? Very well, we can see you too. Grace, Grace. Um, no, just to follow up on Maria, I think the, uh, the issue here is that uh, transmission uh, and susceptibility are, are, are very different in very different countries, different people transmitting, different people susceptible. The fact is that uh, we don't know where this uh, much mooted herd immunity lies, the level of immunity in the population that, that itself by itself suppresses transmission because there aren't enough people susceptible available. Um, they, the question is, we are, there is no question in my mind, we're a long way from that. Uh, and will remain a long way from that in the absence of, uh, of an effective uh, vaccine. It may be lower than was previously suggested at 60, 70, 80 percent. We don't know how much lower. We don't know what role herd, um, um, cell based immunity and other things play in the, in the disease. And we certainly don't know how long uh, protection lasts. So, yes, there's a lot up in the air. There's a lot to be discussed. There's a lot to be. Um, worked out between the scientists. But I think what we can say with certainty is right now, as a planet, as a global population, we are nowhere close to the levels of immunity required to stop this disease transmitting. And we need to focus on what we can actually do now to suppress transmission and not live in hope of herd immunity being our salvation. Right now, that is not a solution. Uh, and it's not a solution we should be looking to uh, for, for our salvation. Thank you, Dr. Ryan, and now Dr. Elwes got some more to add. Yes, sorry, Margaret. I think I think Michael really captured it because there were two parts of this question, as we were alluding to. You know, what level of herd immunity? We're dealing with a respiratory-borne pathogen which is relentlessly seeking out the susceptibles. That's what we're seeing, which means you want very high herd immunity. Now, we're also human, so when we hear a range of 50% to 80%, we think, gosh, I hope it's 50%. But in a situation like this, where we lock down half the world's population, where the economy is ground to a halt in so many places, you have to plan for um, a very high levels of herd immunity. 
community because we don't want to take chances. We don't want to be wrong. So as we're planning vaccination, as we're planning the rollout, you want to plan to get high coverage and not get lulled into a you know dangerously seductive uh, suggestion that it could be low. The other part of that question was about um, the if we get 50% uh, vaccination coverage, are we there? And no, this is another point we need to be very clear on. We can't confuse vaccination coverage with the proportion of the population that's immune because the vaccine may work in 80% of people, 50, 60% of people. So you have to multiply your coverage times the efficacy to figure out what proportion is going to be, uh, be, be actually protected. So if we only get 50% coverage, the number that are actually protected will be even lower, which means we're nowhere near what it would take to protect populations in general. And the last point I would make was the one we discussed last week was, and Mike keeps hammering it, you need the full package. There aren't silver bullets. You're dealing with a nefarious enemy here. You want to have your diagnostics, your testing, your, your quarantining. Um, you want to have your therapeutics as well as your vaccine. And that's why the Director General launched and is talking about the ACT Accelerator so much. It's about getting all of these tools to scale so that we can actually tackle this thing properly and get back to the new normal we need to keep our societies functioning and our economies open and our health system safe. Thank you very much for all those answers, Drs. Van Kerkhoff, Dr. Ryan, and Dr. Aylward. We now have, we're now moving to Azerbaijan for our next question, which is coming from Kamran Kasimov of Real TV, Azerbaijan. Kamran, can you unmute yourself and ask your question? You heard me? Yes, we can. Please yeah. go ahead. Yes, okay. Greetings from Azerbaijan, from Real TV. I have a question about education system because some countries, also Azerbaijan, are uh, discussing uh, for the new school season, of course. So um, there have many uh, points about the reduce of the uh, hours of lessons, and uh, we need uh, for official position of WHO. Uh, maybe you have new rules or suggestions about the new school season because uh, I repeat, many countries, also Azerbaijan, preparing for the school season. Please. Thank you so much uh, for this really important question. It's, it's, quite, it's a question we get quite often um, around uh, the, the opening and closing of schools. Um, there are many, WHO has issued guidance around the considerations of opening schools, closing schools, full closure, partial closure in the context of this pandemic. What is really, really important is that we understand that schools operate in communities. Schools are not in isolation. So if the virus is circulating in communities, if the virus is circulating around that school where, where the children live, where the people who work at that school uh, live, there's a possibility that the virus can enter the school system. So what we've done is we have outlined um, a number of considerations for schools to take into account for the safe reopening of schools. Everybody recognizes globally the importance of schools for children, not only for education, but for security, for food, for social interaction, for protection. Um, and so it is really important that, that schools, that we open schools safely, but they need to be done in the context of the wider circulation of the virus. So what we've done is we've outlined a number of considerations for the decision makers to take, um, which outlines, you know, what is the circulation of the virus around that school? Um, what is the setting like of the school itself? 
itself. Not all schools operate the same way. Um, there are different physical structures of the buildings themselves. There's different age groups that are part of the, the, the buildings where the children go. Uh, what are the policies, the resources, the infrastructure that is in place? Um, to ensure that you can continue to do physical distancing and that um, children have access to running water, they have access to having the ability to wash their hands. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hands or use an alcohol-based rub um, and ensure that, that school can continue safely. So we have a number of guidance that's out there that looks at hygiene and environmental cleaning within the schools, um, that looks at screening within the school itself. So is there a system in place to rapidly detect a case uh, in, that, in that school if it occurs among a child um, and, or among the staff themselves? And then what is the plan? In addition to that, to outline considerations around communication. So not only talking to the people who work at that school, talking to the children themselves, listening to the children themselves um, about how they can go back to school safely and the parents of those children to weigh the concerns of the parents. So there's a number of considerations that need to be taken into account. Um, but again, just to reiterate, that these schools do not op operate in isolation, that they are part of the communities. So if the virus is circulating in the communities, there's a possibility of that virus entering the school itself. Thank you very much, Dr. Maria van Kerkhove. The next question, for the next question, we're going to Spain to Oriol from El País. Uh, Oriol, can you unmute yourself and ask your question? Hola, buenas tardes, ¿me oyen? Good afternoon, can you hear me? I have a question from Spain and in the European Union generally countries have responded with restrictions on the movement of people, with quarantines and with instructions not to travel and I'd like to know what your reaction is uh, to those measures. Thank you. Uh, I think this one's one for Maria to start with. Yes, so thanks again for um, the question uh, about um, we are seeing a large number of countries that are opening up their societies and part of opening up that society includes travel uh, and includes the ability for people to travel. Um, we have recently issued guidance similar to what I've just mentioned about the schools. These are about considerations for travel um, and how this can be done safely. Um, and it's not just the act of travel itself. It starts from when you, you, know, you leave your home and if you are feeling unwell, shouldn't be traveling. If you are a case, you should be in isolation. If you are a contact of a case, you should be in quarantine and therefore not traveling. 
But when travel you know, is able to, to open up, uh, what are the considerations countries need to take? Um, some of this has to do with looking at the risk of circulation where you're traveling from to where you're traveling to. Um, and some countries have adopted measures of looking at these corridors, um, of these safe corridors of, of traveling between this country and that country, meaning that the risk of exposure or the risk of transmission is the same in each of these countries. Um, but again, it's more about uh, considerations. There's no one-size-fits-all here. Um, because the virus is circulating at different intensity across different countries, as an organization, it's very difficult for us to be very prescriptive. So what we've done is we've outlined these considerations for the decision makers to take when they're looking at travel, who should travel, how this should be done. Um, it is important that if travel is taking place that it's that you know essential workers need to get where they need to get, that supplies need to go across the country. The director general has highlighted many, many times um, challenges in getting supplies across the globe because flights have not been able to uh, take off, and we're still seeing issues with this. We're still seeing issues with getting supplies to the countries where they need to go. Um, and so, again, it's more about the considerations as opposed to being very prescriptive about if this happens, then you can do this. Got something to add? Yeah, maybe just to add a point on that uh, area when you ask, you know, our position as the World Health Organization on this. Our position is you need to know who is infected with this disease. You need to ensure those people are isolated and you need to ensure their contacts are identified and quarantined. The reason countries are putting travel restrictions in place, et cetera, is because they can't they don't know that and they're not able to manage the risks and they're not able to understand the risks. When we get to the position where we can really test at the levels we have to know who's infected, those people are really being isolated so they can't infect others and their, and, and their contacts and those people aren't traveling, then the virus isn't going to travel. You know, this all comes back again to extraordinary measures that are being implemented in the absence often of our ability to do the basic public health measures that are so fundamental to getting this thing under control. So when you have a flare, you know, is that the first thing you need to do? The first thing you need to do, test, isolate, trace the contacts, make sure those folk aren't moving. That's why we quarantine them. That's why we isolate them. And then virus transmission stops. Um, so again, everything comes back to the fundamentals of managing this disease. Thank you very much, Dr. Elwood and Dr. Van Kerkhove. The next question we have comes from Pakistan. We are really moving around the globe today, and it's from Niha. And Niha, can you uh, unmute yourself and ask your question? Hi. Um, recently, South Korea detected a genetically mutated COVID-19 virus in cases imported from Pakistan and Uzbekistan. What could you tell us about the mutation? And is there any evidence that these mutations are the reason behind low mortality rates in, the, in both these countries? Thank you. So thanks, thanks for this question. I'll, I'll begin. Um, so you, you highlight one uh, article that, that's looking at mutations in this SARS-CoV-2 virus. Um, what I, I want to give you a, a more general answer to this because there are a lot of people globally that are looking at um, sequences. Uh, of this virus and looking at changes in the virus or mutations. Um, more than 75,000 full genome sequences are available publicly and globally coming from countries all over the world who are sharing those viruses. So that's wonderful and we need that to continue to happen. 
Um, what we have done as an organization is we have utilized and harnessed the expertise of uh, laboratorians and virologists and people who study specifically coronaviruses and specifically study mutations and changes and what that means to work with us to help us disentangle what all of this means. An article saying that there's a new mutation can sound quite scary, but these changes in these viruses happen all the time. Um, there, is a, there is a change uh, in this D614G uh, mutation um, that is something that has been circulating since February. It was first identified in February, and this is the predominant strain that is circulating in, in Europe and in North America, and it's come back into Asia again. Um, what, we, what is important is that um, we've, we're tracking these viruses and that these viruses are being shared. And what we're doing with the working group, a special working group um, that has recently been formed, we had been discussing this in January, but we specifically formed a research group to look at each of these changes, each of these mutations, to say which one is important, which one means that the virus could potentially behave differently, and then how do we study that? So it isn't just identifying that there is a change, it's actually looking to see, does this mean that the virus is behaving differently? Um, and so those are very important studies that need to be done. In terms of mortality, in terms of the differences that we've seen in mortality across countries, I think we've answered this question, or we've had this question many times. There are many different reasons why we see differences in mortality across countries. It's quite dangerous to compare exact the crude case fatality rate across countries. Um, some of this has to do with the people that are infected um, in the country, and in South Korea, particularly in the beginning, many of the people that were infected were quite young, um, and therefore uh, didn't, have any, didn't have as many underlying conditions or progressed to severe disease or death. So there's a number of reasons why we are seeing differences in mortality across the globe. Thank you very much, Dr. Van Kerkhoff. Uh, the next question, goes to uh, Stephanie, the Reuters correspondent, Stephanie Nebehe. Please unmute yourself and ask your question, Stephanie. Hi, thank you. Thank you very much. I, I wondered if um, uh, perhaps Dr. Tedros could comment on some of these photos, this photo that has been circulating today from on social media and so forth from Wuhan, China, of people parting uh, in very close proximity in a pool, and what concerns you may have about that, particularly ahead of the upcoming uh, WHO uh, mission to China, which may include a, um, a visit to, uh, to Wuhan. Thank you very much. So Stephanie, thanks for the question. Uh, I will begin. So the, I, I did see the picture that you are referring to, um, but I would like to point out that I have seen almost exactly that same picture in probably every country globally right now. So I think the point is, is that we need to ensure that everybody knows the, we want everybody to take a risk-based approach for themselves to understand what is the risk themselves. We shouldn't be blaming people or putting people at fault for wanting to live their lives. We all want to be living our lives. We all want to get back to what quote unquote normal used to be. But I think we just need to make sure that the messages that are getting out, particularly to young people, particularly to children and young adults, um, that you are not invincible to this virus. And that's not meant to scare people, but it's meant to say that you can get infected 
And we are seeing people, even young people, who are ending up with severe disease. We are seeing young people who are ending up in ICU, and we are seeing young people who are dying from this virus. And so it's very important that you not only protect yourself from getting infected, you, present, you, you prevent yourself from dying. The decisions that you are making, everyone on this planet, the decisions that you are making um, are, are protecting yourself. Your life depends on this. And not only that, even if you don't, even if you do get infected and you do, don't have a severe disease, you could pass that virus to somebody else who's part of a vulnerable population. Many of us live with older people. Um, many of us live with people who have underlying conditions. And if we pass that virus to somebody else who has an underlying condition, they could develop severe disease and they can die. So it's possible for us to keep circulating that virus. So I think what is really important is that everybody understands what their risk is. And if it's possible to avoid these crowded places, um, please do so. Um, there are good messages out there. We need to make sure that they reach the right people without scolding people, but make people feel empowered. How do I still remain social? How do I still see my friends, but still protect myself? So it's a responsibility and accountability that all of us have as this pandemic continues. Thank you very much, Dr. Van Kerkhoff. Uh, we now have a question from Ilgin from BBC Turkish Service. Ilgin, please uh, unmute yourself and ask your question. Hello, thank you. Um, my question is about Turkey. Turkey has initially applied a mixed approach, uh, locking down certain age groups like over 55s and under 20s, or locking down on the weekends but opening up during the week. When, when you view the situation from Geneva, how does Turkey's scorecard and its strategy look? And I'm, I'm talking about the strategy for governments uh, to provide treatment if somebody gets infected or offer a vaccination when it becomes available. But to say that if you get infected, it's on you. In other words, you know, leaving the responsibility to protect oneself completely on the, in, on, on the individual. Is this a viable strategy? Thank you. Uh, thanks. Uh, so I, I, I will begin. I can't specifically speak to Turkey, although I'm looking at the numbers and, and they, it looks, it appears transmission has, has been reduced to quite a low level. So that, that is good. I think one of the things I just want to mention is you mentioned the individual responsibility. As I just mentioned in my previous answers, individuals have a responsibility, absolutely. Families have a responsibility. Communities have a responsibility. Governments have a responsibility. It isn't just at the individual level, although the individual level is incredibly important because the decisions we make, and if we could reduce our exposure, if we could reduce the possibility of us getting infected, that's, that's the start. But governments also have a responsibility um, to put in place responsible, constructive, cohesive, uh, clear national plans um, that look at this all of government, all of society approach, which focuses on the fundamentals, finding active case finding, isolating cases, caring for cases, making sure that they have appropriate care in medical facilities, or if they can be managed at home, make sure that they are managed at home safely so that they don't pass the virus to others. Making sure contact tracing is being conducted um, consistently and comprehensively, and that contacts are quarantined so that they don't have the possibility to pass it to someone else if they are uh, infected themselves. To make sure that there's clinical care, appropriate care for individuals depending on the severity of their symptoms. And this includes symptomatic treatment. It includes oxygen um, and respiratory support. Um, dexamethasone if they develop critical or severe disease for the most severe patients. Making sure that our health workers are trained and protected 
um, and so that when they care for patients, that they're not uh, unduly exposing themselves to infection, and a number of other a number of other things. So what Turkey has done and what other countries have done, you know, taking this approach, tailoring it to the needs of the country, the capacities of the, of the country. Um, and being consistent in this application of these measures is really what is critical. Um, as the pandemic evolves. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. There may be situations where the virus could resurge. Um, and so the system that has been put in place for COVID that is built upon existing systems needs to really act quickly so that any of these clusters can be brought under control. We lost connection with Dr. Ryan. Oh, Dr. Elwood, did you want to add nothing? We lost connection with Dr. Ryan, but he's back now. Dr. Ryan, uh, would you like to add to that? Um, hi, Margaret. No, I, I think uh, as I missed uh, a good piece of the interaction, I think I'll uh, reserve uh, speaking at this point. Thank you very much. The next question will be going down south, down to South Africa. Uh, it to Tamar, Business Day, South Africa. Tamar, can you unmute yourself and ask your question? Um, hi there. Um, I think this is a question to the Director General, Dr. Ted. Could you please give us a sense of how many member states have already signed up to COVAX and whether South Africa is among them? And kind of linked to that, could you perhaps comment on what might be defer deterring or holding up the sign-up of, of more countries? Thank, thank you very much, Tamar, um, especially for raising the issue of the, the importance of COVAX. And for the others on the line who may not be familiar, of course, that's shorthand for what is the uh, ACT-A's uh, coronavirus, uh, uh, or, or COVID, pardon me, global vaccines facility. So this is a global solution that has been developed to try and ensure as many countries as possible can pool the risks of development of COVID vaccines. As everyone on this call knows, there are many, many vaccine candidates. Many of them are in trials built on many different platforms in different parts of the world. We simply don't know yet which ones are truly going to protect people against the disease. So a key goal of this platform or this, this facility is to have as many countries as possible cooperate together to be able to pool the development risks, working with manufacturers and others, to pool the investments, and then to pool the procurement and allocation of that product. Because as Dr. Tedro said in his opening comments, one of the things we've learned the very hard way in this, uh, in this crisis is that we can't get out of it alone in terms of the protection of our health systems, our economies, our societies. We have got to get the highest risk uh, parts of the world vaccinated at the same time, roll that out um, from the highest risk populations globally is going to be 
the most effective way to do that. You can only do that or most effectively when you have a global solution, a global facility like the COVAX facility. So this, uh, this uh, facility, this global vaccines facility, there are two groups of countries in them. There's a 92 countries, which are a combination of the usual countries that work with Gavi, the Global Vaccines Alliance, and other countries that may need assistance. There's 92 of those. And then there are a group of what we call fully self-financing countries, and there's 80 countries that have expressed an interest. So we have a huge uh, number of countries that are engaged right now in discussions about the Global COVAX facility. Um, the uh, the total, as, as I said now, is over uh, 170, and that represent about 70% of the world's population. Um, have a, you, you asked how many have actually signed up specifically. Um, right now, we're still in the process of design the terms, what we call the agreement terms, which country would sign to join uh, the facility are just being finalized. We are looking for an indication, a firm indication for countries by the 31st of August. So that'll be the time frame that we'll be able, Tamar, to give you a better um, uh, 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 indication of who has expressed an interest versus who is actually signed on. Now, in addition to those 170 countries, one of the questions we had since last week is what about all the other countries? And there are, as people know, the European Union is working toward a solution for the European countries and some other countries are as well. And one of the other substantive developments over the past week has been a much closer working relationship with these to try and make sure we can all join forces together to um, ensure the most uh, 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 collaboration possible in the rollout of vaccines because, again, as the Director General said, the key is not ensuring um, all people in some countries get vaccinated. That's not the solution. The solution is some countries the, or some populations, the highest risk populations in all countries. That is the fastest way to bring severe disease down, save lives, get health systems safe and robust again, and then get our societies fully functioning and our economies uh, working. It's a self-interest of everyone to cooperate together, and the facility is a key piece of that. Doctor, thank you, Dr. Elwood. The next question comes from Sarah Wheaton from Politico. Sarah, can you unmute yourself and ask your question? Yes, thank you. And I apologize for the um, construction noise that then may be in the background coming from me. Uh, but also following up on um, on COVAX, uh, uh, a, I would I would request a, a, an answer to my uh, colleague's question about what what resistance you may be hearing from countries that have not expressed interest yet. Um, and also uh, any more details um, from what Dr. Aylward just mentioned about collaboration um, on the with, with efforts such as that of the European Commission. And if you are starting to see some collaboration, if not full-fledged joining from, uh, from the United States and China. Thank you. Uh, thank you uh, very much, and th thank thanks. Uh, as <laughs> I think Mike and uh, Maria and Dr. Tedros said, we're, we're all a little sleep deprived and don't always hear the full question. So apologies if we miss a piece, and please do come back like that. So in terms of the challenges to joining the COVAX facility, um, this is brand new, um, and and a lot of it is still under design. And you, the the question was asked about resistance to joining. We're not twisting arms <laughs> for people to join the facility. 
volatility. This is in the interests of countries to pool their uh, risk, to reduce the risk of an individual country, and then be able to get the best possible prices and guarantee the, the receipt of this. Now, um, for many countries, though, remember, this requires legislation in some countries to be able to work with a facility like this. In other countries, they have to figure out, well, what are the actual costs going to be, and, and then what part of our balance sheet do we use, and how do we do that? Um, other countries have pursued bilateral deals, again, as you're aware, and you, you referred to those, and so they want to know how will we handle those within the facility. So a number of these details are still being worked out. I, I think the fantastic news is that um, no matter what the challenge, there are potential solutions to all of them. And what we've found, and, and, and credit here to the Director General who's led a lot of these conversations, um, you know, when we hit the big uh, uh, challenges, uh, and, and such as, of course, um, and I think you referred to it, the EU and other countries are setting up some bilateral deals, that the big issue is how do we make sure that those deals work in collaboration with the global COVAX facility so that we can roll this out to the entire world at the same time to cover the highest risk populations. So the key word here is how you join forces on that collaboration. And, and that's what I was referring to in the last uh, um, um, uh, intervention. We've had more and more discussions with a broader and broader group of players um, and, and tried to work through what might be the barriers to collaborating um, and whether that, you know, are issues around price, issues around timing, issues around national expectations, et cetera. Um, but, but this does take some time. Now, as much as we all want to have a vaccine tomorrow, we won't. It's going to take a little bit of time. And the key for us now is this is just one more of those windows of opportunity that we have to use extremely well to be able to optimize uh, the use of the vaccines in scarce supply as they become available. And that speaks to the last point that um, was mentioned in Dr. Tedros's intervention about the global uh, uh, allocation framework. Again, this is a really important piece of work being led by WHO, working across all member states and, and other entities to try and um, agree together what our public health imperative is, what populations need to be vaccinated in which order to be able to achieve those objectives, and then how do we translate that into a concrete mechanism to collaborate together on that rollout. Um, it's, it's the right thing to do. It's the fair thing to do. And I think, again, as the Director General said, uh, uh, you should speak to this. I keep quoting you. The, uh, the, the evidence over the past and recent weeks is economically, this is in everyone's self-interest as well. Um, and Mary Angela has been leading a lot of this work and may wish to uh, intervene as well. Thank you, Bruce, and thank you for the question. I think this is uh, an extremely important uh, topic as we are talking about new new technologies coming into the market and and the experience has historically that new technologies they arrive at different speeds in different parts of the world right so a lot of the work that's being done now on on the covax and the covax facility on the who allocation framework is to give the best chances for a global solution to a problem that cannot be solved country by country and uh, uh, we have close to 200 vaccine candidates right now and maybe 26 or 28 because every day these numbers change. 
uh, are already in clinical trials, and as of Friday, we had five that were on phase three clinical trials. And then when, when you're asking about uh, uh, resistance or uh, specific countries that have uh, uh, bilateral deals or not, and we, WHO is putting very clearly in discussing with member states that there is a limit to what one country can do in terms of committing itself to one or two or three or five uh, candidates, but which one will be the candidate that will be successful, we don't know yet. So there's a lot of understanding and a, a lot of convergency globally, including with one, the one regional initiative that we have, which is the European Commission initiative, uh, a lot of understanding that uh, a, a global solution is needed. And we have countries that are, have already expressed interest on the COVAX facility that have bilateral deals themselves. You know, so. Uh, by joining the facility and at the same time that you, you do your bilateral deals, we are, you're actually betting on a larger number of vaccine candidates. So I think what's, what we see, especially in the past two weeks, is a, a, an increase in convergence around the need to find a, a global solution in the commitment to ensure that once we have a vaccine that's both safe and efficacious, that there is equitable access to all countries at the end of the day. Thank you. There's one nuance to this that, that again, I'm, I'm sorry, folks, to come back, but just, just that everyone's clear on as well. Um, when you hear about these multilateral and bilateral deals, like, um, like Maria Angela mentioned, often a country may be in a position to make a deal with one company, um, because these are expensive. And the challenge is they don't know if that vaccine is going to work or if it's going to work in the populations they need it to work in and, and, and multiple other uh, factors. And again, what the COVAX facility does is it tries to pool that. So right now we have uh, nine vaccines, just over nine, across three different major platforms, technology platforms in multiple countries to try and spread that risk. We, If there's a winner in vaccines, we'll have one. There's absolutely no question. The key now is we're looking to even expand beyond that to make sure that we have an even broader portfolio. And again, the goal is to make sure that um, vaccines will be found, because part of this is about supporting, obviously, the development of those and, and the development at scale, but then also to ensure that the ones that do work are equitably and appropriately used, because that is the only way to get out of this together. Thank you very much, Dr. Elwin, Dr. Shimao. And with those, those that excellent question and those really great answers, we're running over time, so we've only got time for one more question, and that will come from Jonathan from DP2 in Denmark. Jonathan, please unmute yourself and go ahead. Thank you. Can you hear me? Yes, very uh, well. Thank you. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Can yes, you, you can. Me? You have included the traditional Chinese medicine in your new international diagnostic manual. Therefore, I ask, can you imagine fighting COVID-19 with the secretion extracted from the gallbladder of a live bear? And how many doctors do you estimate it would require to hold the bear down while doing so? Thank you, Jonathan. That's not a real question. Um, I think that that marks the end of our press conference. Um, we will now say thank you very much to everybody who joined, and I'll hand over to Dr. Tedros.
This show has been produced by Depictions Media. Please contact us at depictions.media for more information.